there's a joy for me to be able to come back and see evolutions of communities. So I was here many, many years ago before this building was had anything to do with the temple. And people would squish in the various different corners of the main hall up there in order for the meditation. So it's lovely to be able to see everyone's face and to see the community uh, change. And also some of you I know from a few years ago. So it's lovely. I can tell where it is. Thank you. I, I wanted to talk a little bit this morning about um, core principles of the Buddha's teaching and, uh, and let it unfold in, in terms of something that I think is really important for us in our contemporary time. So from the Theravada tradition, one of the core teachings that we refer to again and again and again and again and again are the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths being that the first one is, is, is that there is suffering and stress in our lives and in the world. And I don't think we need to look too far to see the relevance, the pertinence, the accuracy, that that is actually the way things are shaping up. That's the way things have been and likely the way that they may continue. You know, we feel stress. Our bodies get sick. Your friends change. Our relationships, things shift. And the kind of uncertainty that is happening that we're dealing with right now is unsettling. The second noble truth is, is that there's a cause of all of this, you know. And in our world, particularly in North America and most prominently in the United States, we are highly sophisticated at looking at the external causes, you know, what's going on outwardly that's causing all of these things to be so stressful. And one of the things that happens when we come into a contemplative world is we look inwardly. How am I relating to what's going on that's keeping this added stuff of what we're doing with what's already there in place? What is my relationship with what's going on? How is that playing into the stress and the suffering that we experience? So if the first is about that there's suffering, the second is that there's a cause. And on this level, in a contemplative level, what we're looking at is the inward relationship with things as they are that is holding the suffering in place. And the third is, is that there's the end of suffering. And so most of the time when we think about the end of suffering, we think about being transported into a Garden of Eden, you know, where there's no pain and there's no difficulty and there's no stress. But this ending of suffering is ending the added stuff, the extra stuff, the stuff that we put onto everything that's happening. It's ending that, and that's where the suffering releases. Let me just tell you a quick story, and then I'll go on to the fourth one. I just came from the desert in Southern California, and I was really glad to be there because I had been in Northern California, and I was in this magnificent property, but the property in Northern California, as in everywhere else, had had an inundation of rain, and so they had a, a mold kind of explosion where there was mold growing everywhere. And one of the molds that was there was quite toxic. And so I got, inhaled some, and there was some in my system, and my system was not having a good time with all of this. So I went to a sister monastery in Southern California, which is in the desert. So I went from one extreme to the other extreme, where it was wet in one place and dry in the other place. 
And I felt very well there, very happy, very relaxed, very comfortable. And what I love to do and have always loved to do is to go wandering and to feel the earth beneath me and to press rocks against my limbs and into my back and have the land hold me and receive me. And I feel myself well when I can do that. So I'd been there a day and it was the next day and I thought I'll go off wandering into the landscape. So I was happy, you know, and it was comfortable and the dry air felt very soothing. And I sat down on a rock and I could feel the texture of the rock underneath my limbs. And the smell of the desert air has a particular aroma to it that's just um, variegated and rich, colorful. And the sun was setting and I just felt content and peaceful and delighted. And I got up and as I got up I noticed that somebody had taken a big Buddha's and snestled it into this rock right where I was. But it wasn't, it wasn't even a prominent place. I only saw it as I was leaving. So it felt enormously auspicious. All the good signs. Everything is fine. And the Buddha is even here giving approval. <laughs> and I walk maybe five steps. And all of a sudden there's bees everywhere. And I have no idea where the bees came from. I had, didn't hear them you know, or anything. And so, you know, I think, okay, bees, you know, you gently push them away. They were not leaving. In fact, they were stinging. So there were bees that were around my head and my face and my eyes and my arms, and they started stinging, and so I apologized, because I thought, well, I'm in their space, you know, I need to apologized, so I apologized, and they didn't stop stinging me. <laughs> so I thought, well, we're not speaking the same language. I need to I need to do more than just apologize. I need to get out of here. <laughs> and I need to get out of here rather quickly, because there are a lot of them, and they're stinging. So, you know, I was up on some boulders, and I was, you know, it's, it's um, thorny, and there were volcanic rock, and you can't move very quickly on volcanic rock and in thorny shrubs, so I was moving as quickly as I could and apologizing the whole way. And they continued to follow me and to sting me, you know? And, you know, I had, when I was two, I think I'd gotten bitten by one bee, and I was I was um, really, really, really sick for like a week. I think I, we had to go to the hospital because I was so sick. This was not one. This was very many. And so I was aware of the fact that my system could have freaked. You know, I could have gone into shock or anaphylactic shock or my breathing startup could have done all of that stuff. But there was just this clarity of don't add anything extra. You know, just be with the right moment, just now, right moment, just now, right moment, just now. Watch your feet. Don't step on any snakes. Keep apologizing and don't add anything extra. So I got back to the buildings as fast as I could. They followed me until almost I got back to the buildings, which was like, it took about 40 minutes to get back to the buildings. I got back in and I said, you know, I've got something unfortunate to report. <laughs> I had 30 bee stings I had, you know. But it was brilliant opportunity to see there can be something that's very painful, and you don't have to add anything extra to it. You can just be with it and then attend with the next moment, what's next, okay? So I was tense while they were stinging, but I wasn't rattled. And so there was really a nice recognition that the practice can carry with you in times 
where you're not automatically transported into a Garden of Eden. Or you go from the Garden of Eden automatically into a Garden of Hell, and it's just <laughs> six feet away, you know? It's just like right there. So the third noble truth is, is that there's a cessation of suffering. And the fourth noble truth is that there's a path to end the cessation of suffering. There's a path that supports. And the whole path is talking about factors of mindfulness and factors of right thought, and factors of energy and right livelihood, factors that support our ability to bring our good intentions to everything that we do. But what I want to talk about is community as the center of that path. You know, what happens when we look at the Eightfold Path from the point of view that when we refer to the community that we're in as the axis mundi, as the still point, as the center point, as the place where everything comes together, then that gives us the capacity to develop each of those factors and keep coming back into community as the way from which it grounds and as the way from which it develops and is the way in which our path unfolds. So in Asia, which is where the tradition originated from, Asia has a very um, deeply embedded cultural sense. There's extended families and villages and clans. There isn't or at least until, you know, the last 20 years, the concept of an individual had no purchase. It had no relevance. You didn't exist as an individual person. You existed entirely in context of your family or your village or your clan, okay? And in that context, because people were so embedded with each other, it made tremendous amount of sense to get some perspective on all of that, to really emphasize silence and solitude as a practice way so that you can have some perspective on the way that you locate yourself. Because you're totally embedded. We come to the West and guess what? We're not totally embedded. In fact, it's quite the opposite. There's quite a lot of fracturing. There's not a lot of cohesiveness. We don't come from family structures that are intact. The village has broken down. We don't have a sense of clan. We don't have a sense of trade that unites us with everybody else who's in that trade. And so what we experience as a result of our postmodernization is an incredible sense of isolation and alienation and a sense of of rampant meaninglessness, that nothing has value and everything is meaningless. And we take this cultural context and we, into that we bring the teachings of the Buddha and what we're interested in doing is waking up out of the suffering that is not only the suffering of birth, old age, sickness and death, but the suffering of what we're experiencing in a postmodern society that is endemic with alienation, isolation, and a pervasive sense of meaninglessness. When we place community as the axis mundi, then what we do is we start to build a container that allows these things to begin to heal and to grow and to begin to develop in a way where what is needed can be touched, 
where what needs to grow can grow, what needs to be supported can be supported. And as we begin to move in and out of a context of being in relationship with each other, we can begin to feel how that can be something that we can relax and trust. And in relaxing and trusting that, then we can have more leverage to do the work that's needed to see where our path is obstructed and where we need to cultivate. I remember many years ago, I was living in a monastery and there was a young woman there who I was very fond of and very connected to. And we had talked quite a lot, so I had a deep sense of her and her predicament. And I asked her to contemplate her own goodness. And she looked at me like I had just asked her to clean out the pit toilet without any gloves on. You know? It was the most disgusting, foul, incomprehensible, like there was no possible way that she could do that. You know? Or she didn't even know how. And so one of the ways that a community can support each other is by mirroring each other's goodness. Because we can see in ourselves in probably half a second everything that we've done wrong. All our mistakes, all our shortcomings, the things that we're not good at, the loops about the fact that we can't do it, we're not good enough, we don't have the skills, we don't have the training, we don't have the commitment. We don't see our beauty, we don't see what we have done, we don't see the work and, the, and, and what we have shifted and changed and uprooted and what we have developed. So a healthy, a loving community is able to mirror for each other your goodness. Not as a kind of marshmallow pink goo, you know, not as a kind of like, you know, you're cool, you know, end of story, but as a way of really touching into the human being and seeing the beauty that's there. And when others can see that in each other, then we can begin to have more connection with that in ourselves. And that is one of the fundamental requirements for being able to do the work of seeing what is not beautiful and getting some leverage on it. So that we're not just looping around an identity about it, but we actually get some leverage around seeing the causes and conditions that give rise to that stuff and starting to shift it so that it's not moving in the same patterns. So, you've had tons of rain, you know? You've had so much rain that the sewer system can't cope, the rivers are overspilling, and the, you know, the septics are going into the, into the river systems. You know, when there's a lot of rain, the water flows whatever which way it can. Okay? When you dig deep trenches, the water flows another way. So with some of these patterns, they have dug deep trenches, and we need to sandbag them and divert the channel so that it goes another way, because water goes where it's easiest. You know? It goes, it just, that's its nature. It's not personal. You know? <laughs> and the same is true with all of these patterns. It goes where it's easiest. It's not personal. But we need to actually make the effort to recognize that, especially when the septic is getting into the fresh water system where the fish are living, okay? 
to divert it so that it goes someplace where then nature can take care of it in a way where it's less destructive. It takes effort. It takes clear seeing. And it takes support. And one of the ways that we can get that support is by being in community that recognizes the importance of doing that work and gives the friendship and the encouragement and sometimes the refuge of safety to help each other so that we can, you know. Because we're living in a society that has such a deep sense of alienation and meaninglessness as a pervasive endemic thing that we have to deal with, one of the consequences of that is loneliness, you know. This deep sense of wanting to meet with other people in a genuine way, not in a superficial way. And then we have all the fantasies about what that would look like, or who the perfect person would be, you know. And if we found them and related to them and had contact with them in all the ways that we thought would be deeply meaningful, all the fulfillment that would come. And certainly, you know, relationships can have an opportunity for deep meaning and tremendous interaction. But anyone who's been in a relationship for more than ten minutes know that that's not the whole story. <laughs> the same is true for community. We can have this wonderful idealized uh, uh, image about how supportive a community can be. And you put more than two people together in a room, and what happens? We're having to deal with everyone's stuff, and sometimes the stuff is not coming together in a way which is supportive. It's coming in together in a way which is disruptive or divisive or agitating or nerve-wracking. And yet, when we can see that being with each other and being with the difficulties that emerge through that is the path. It's not that we have to make all that stuff go away in order to then cultivate the path that that is the path, then what we do is we build into our community structures the commitment and the time frames and the systems to process what emerges so that we can move into something which is increasingly more and more healthy, more and more authentic, and more and more allowing what is genuinely in service of awakening to emerge. So, I am making the assumption that you're here because you're interested in waking up. Is that correct? Absolutely. You know, how interested are you in waking up? (laughs) What are you willing to do to wake up? The stuff that we don't want to do the most is the stuff that we have to do the most. And I can say from experience, you know, community is challenging. It's blessing, and it's wonderful, and it's lovely, and it's also incredibly challenging. And yet, when we can learn to have that be the focus of where our path emerges from, then when we do that, we begin to realize that we can bring to that resource that will allow challenge to transmute into the blessings of the Buddha Dhamma Sangha that we know have in it the potential that we long for, for freedom. 
for awakening. When I was leaving Colorado Springs, I was meeting with um, the Dharma Punks. Do you guys know about the Dharma Punks? Dharma Punks is a came out of Noah Levine and uh, his understanding of Dharma in terms of kind of like a bullshit free zone, really. You know, don't give me dogma, don't give me ritual, don't give me stuff that I can't relate to. Just give me straight that helps me get free. And so the Dhamma Punks is often a group of people who are between 20 and 45, often often tattooed to the nines. <laughs> Many of these people look like pirates. Anyway, they've been wonderful friends and very good support. You know, tremendous heart connection we have. And so I was there and we were talking about things and somebody said, so what? You know, in the years that I've been a monastic and I've been practicing, you know, what's been the greatest blessing? You know, and I said, community. And he said, and what's been the greatest challenge? And I said, community. (laughs) 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 And um, for me, it's true. You know, it really is true. But what I see is needed in our life right now in a contemporary society that's dealing with what we're dealing with is is that we have got to let the community be the center point of our practice. Otherwise, I don't think we have a stand a chance, both personally and communally and globally. I don't think we stand a chance in being able to deal with what we need to deal with in order that we can actually make this shift and transform what needs to be transformed. So Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, went to the Buddha one day and he said, you know, I, I kind of worked it out. You know, for me it's really clear. You know, I can see, it's really obvious that the, you know, noble friends are half of the holy life. And the Buddha said, don't say that, Ananda. Don't say that. Noble friends are the whole of the holy life. So I was on Facebook doing a something or another and somebody had posted... No, it was a friend who came to me. I was the one who posted. A friend came to me and said that she'd heard that Titnan Han said that the next Buddha that comes is not coming as an individual. The next Buddha that comes is coming as the Sangha. All right? And I don't know what that does to you, but when I heard that, it put shivers up and down my spine because to me that is absolutely in accordance with what I know to be true. It's no longer about the big deal dude that's going to hold it all together and have all the right answers for everybody, you know. It's about us working collaboratively where no one is expected to have all the answers, where everyone is expected to bring their light, their gift, their shining, their weaknesses, their sorrow, their sadness into the table, onto the table, into the mix, and together we can stand and find a way forward. So for me, I have a deep kind of um, a vision and an interest in continuing to share and to talk and to see if there is the possibility that we can bring about the fourfold sangha in our contemporary world in a way 
where it is beneficial to everyone. The fourfold Sangha is the Sangha of fully ordained monks, nuns, and the lay community of men and women who are all interested in waking up. If together we can form the Sangha that is the embodiment of the next Buddha. So these are my reflections for this morning. And I I share with an open heart to take what's of interest and leave aside what's of not relevance. But also for me, whenever I speak, I like it if people have the open invitation to connect with me if I speak in a way that goes against your deepest understanding. You know? Because it's not about me telling you. It's about us being in relationship together. And even though at the moment I'm the only one speaking, if everyone is in relationship with what is being said, there is a perfect dialogue taking place with every one of you. But the only way to secure that is if we have an agreement that if I am speaking in a way that cuts across your deepest understanding, you come back to me somehow at some point and share. It has to be respected. This is very precious. People's attention is something to regard with the utmost respect. So I will stop here with that and perhaps have an opportunity for conversation or discussion and see what emerges. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.